Would you, would you bow your heart in prayer with me? Father, we, we thank you that you in and of yourself have all that we need to be fully satisfied. That you are wholly good, that you are wholly pure, that you are wholly enough for us. And Lord, I know so many times in my own life, the burdens I carry stem from me not living in the fullness of who you are. So Lord, would you do the work of stopping our ears to those who would detract from your word? blinding our eyes to that which would tempt us to not find our satisfaction in you. And open our hearts to your voice, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. A lot of times when we think of taking our burdens to the Lord, maybe an image that comes to mind is having a pile of rocks on your side of the fence and trying to get that pile of rocks to God's side of the fence. And as you're moving those rocks, you notice that, that some of these rocks have very similar colors to them, some similar uh, textures and sizes and shapes. That some, there's a group of rocks that are dark and rounded and a group of rocks that are, that are lighter color and stuff's flaking off of them a little easier. And you, and you start to notice these things and you realize that a lot of these burdens could, could almost fall into categories or types. That maybe there's, there's categories of, of finance or, or self-insecurity, our sin, our employment, looming decisions, future hopes and fears. And, and you may even be tempted to, to, before you put them on the fence, kind of group them together and see what's what. At this point, it, it may be more helpful, and this is a hard pivot and I know it, to think of it less in terms of pile of rocks and more in terms of a pie graph. Because our spirituality is always helped by pie graphs. Graphs, there we go. Um, not just pie itself. But if you think of your burdens as like a pie graph of sorts, and you think of your anxieties and, and the different colors that make up the chunks of the pie, I wonder how big of a chunk of that pie graph would fall into the category of relationships. And maybe it's relationships you never had but always wanted. Maybe it's a difficult work relationship. Maybe it's a, a strained relationship between you and a grown child or you and a parent. Maybe it's a difficult neighbor who doesn't take good enough care of the outside of their house and it bugs you. Or they have Christmas lights that rival that of the Griswolds and you can't sleep for a month a year. I'm guessing for a lot of us, that relationship chunk would be a significant portion of our pie. As there's constant burdens and anxieties coming from our relationships, we're self-conscious, 
We're always in relationship with some other person. Even if we try to insulate, there's always some person we're in relationship with. Maybe we're fully insulated, and it's because of that person. Every relationship has flaws. We love people who don't reciprocate our love back, certainly in a way that we understand. We worry about people. Sometimes we worry about others, what they think, what they've done, the decisions that they're currently making, more than we worry about ourselves. In our relationships, we have tension. We have worry. And that, the, the tension and the wor- worry and the, the angst of relationships is where we're going to spend a lot of our time. Although I know another aspect of this relationship category would certainly be loneliness. And, and that will be addressed in a more roundabout way and, and hopefully comfort will be brought to that today. But in our relationships, we worry and are burdened by them because we, we tend to think we have more control than we do in those. Or in issues of tension, we view ourselves as having the monopoly on wisdom or the monopoly on righteousness. Putting ourselves in this higher category than those we're at conflict with. And in the midst of this, the voice of our flesh at the debate table heightens our fears, purifies our motives, and seeks to lay very specific blame. There's a a finger pointing that occurs within the flesh, and sometimes that finger is very directly pointed at us. You wouldn't have these problems if you were better at this we hear in our minds. And a lot of times, that blame gets pointed at others. If they would just see things my way, which is obviously the right way, it doesn't sound as good when you say it out loud. But if they would see it my way, they would see where I'm coming from, then this would go away. And this finger pointing, whether it's directed at ourselves or directed at our person, bears a lot of similarity to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, where God comes to confront them of their sin. And Adam goes, God, it's that woman you gave me. And she says, well, it's that serpent that came up and talked to me. To, to set the course of where we're going, I want to I move us to Philippians 2.12, this verse that when I was a teenager really troubled me, it, where Paul tells the Philippian church to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And as a teenager, reading Philippians for the first time, having to do some Bible memory work for summer mission trips I was going on, That one bothered me. I was like, okay, I get Jesus giving himself, humbling himself, dying on the cross right before this. Every knee's going to bow. What does it mean that I, who have been saved by grace through faith, should work out my salvation through fear and trembling? Isn't my salvation complete? Can't I confidently approach the throne of grace? What is this fear and trembling business? And as I've grown in my faith, I've come more and more to understand that working out my salvation in fear and trembling, a really big part of this, means preaching the gospel to myself over and over again in various aspects of my life. And carefully and thoughtfully 
and in a wondering way of God, in an awe-filled way approaching the Lord, seeing that the gospel of God affects every single part of my life. And so as we look this morning at this burden of relationships, this burden of tension, I feel it really appropriate for us to do an exercise in working out our salvation in fear and trembling by working relationships through the filter and shape of the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Working relationships through a creation, fall, redemption, new reality lens. Building a a bit of a, a brief, hopefully it still feels brief at the end, a brief biblical theology of relationships. We do this, we have to start at creation. Creation. These people, because we're never, we're never at, at conflict with people we really love. It's always these people, right? These people are those people. These people, like me, are made in the likeness of God. So let's let this gospel shape of the Bible, let's speak to our, let's let it speak to our burden and let's let it guide us. And what we're going to see here is that in, in, in guiding us, viewing people in the image of God, it, it's going to create a context and a boundary for everything we do in conflicted relationships and in our, in our loneliness and in, in the rejection we fight through. Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God says on the sixth day, he says, let us create man in our likeness. And it says he created, in male, male and female, he created them in his likeness. You and every single human you've ever been in conflict with are all made in the likeness of God. There's this familiar scene that we've seen in movies, we've seen at customer service desks, where somebody feels offended and they say, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? Like trumpeting their own importance. And of course, we being humble Christians would never do that ourselves. But we've seen people do it, right? None of us would ever say something like that. I'm being facetious. But we should and we ought to let the image-bearing of God assign a dignity that is of highest value to whoever it is we're at conflict with. We're not making a huge deal of it this morning, but today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. We, we obviously, we celebrate the, the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We pray for crisis pregnancy centers like Agape, who we partner with. We, we pray for the work that Clarissa Brooks is doing in, in helping teen moms be equipped to love their children and lead their children well, and through Freedom for Youth, helping some of those dads do the same. One of my, one of my fears for a long time has been we assign so much dignity at birth and the neonatal dignity of a human being. Would you dare 
to look at that person you can't stand, look at that person you're really struggling with, look at that person that you're so deeply worried about that you're losing sleep over that relationship, would you assign to them that same dignity that we have for so long given to the neonatal pre-born humans? Would you give them that dignity? You are, you are made in the likeness of God. Human life has a holiness to it, even though we are unholy on our own. So give that dignity to them. Let us apply that sanctity of human life to these people. And let that dignity provide us with clear and set boundaries. We need these boundaries in our difficult relationships. James 3, James, who pulls no punches, the pastor I had growing up called James the hard hat book. He said, you got to wear a hard hat when you're reading it because it's going to hit you. Stuff's going to fall. James talks about the power of the tongue. How with a horse, a bridle uses the tongue to turn the whole animal. It calls the tongue... It says the tongue is full of deadly poison and capable of all sorts of evil. And then he, he poses a question that we need to pay attention to. How can, how can a tongue that praises God ever curse someone made in his likeness? He said, can a, can a freshwater spring produce salt water? Then there's, there's no way, if that's impossible, then how could a tongue that declares our worth is in God and what he's done for us, as we just sang a few minutes ago, how can that same tongue proclaiming the glories of God so deeply malign the capstone of his creation? How can our tongues praise the Father in heaven, sing of his glories and grace, and curse another person. I'm not suggesting we refuse to acknowledge where someone is wrong or acting in a way that is hurtful. We'll get to that later. But I am saying that as believers, we should be able to do and instructed to do what the world is finding impossible, and that is to be able to disagree with a person without slandering them. This gets really hard when the personhood of that person feels distant. Here's what I mean. When you don't know them. It's really, I remember as a kid, I went to, uh, my, the first hockey game I ever went to was the Omaha Lancers. And my dad worked with one of the refs and got tickets. And the refs come out on the ice. And as good hockey fans, what do hockey fans do when the refs come out? Oh, they boo, they yell, all kinds of things. My dad's cheering. He's like, yeah, Pat, woo! I'm like, Dad, you're going to get us killed. It's really easy to malign the ref. It's really easy to malign those who we disagree with but don't know on a hot-button issue or a, or a big popular cultural issue. How do, we, how do we talk about those on the other side of a major cultural issue in a way that acknowledges potential wrong and 
upholds their dignity as made in the image of God. Because there's a whole lot of ways, and you know this, there's a whole lot of ways to curse the person without using words that only contain four letters. Catch what I'm saying? It's not just the obvious. There's a whole lot of ways to curse and malign a person that don't require words limited to four letters. So can we praise God and acknowledge the image of likeness born by refs and coaches and bad drivers and politicians? I believe we can. I believe we need to. If for no other reason than the purity of our own worship. Their creation should guide us as a as a value that they carry as much as a value that we carry. But we know that the Bible does not end with creation. It moves to the fall. That these people, just like me, are sinners by nature and choice. It seems obvious. And in most cases, it is obvious. But there's, there's a couple real blind areas that people carry. And, and, and the, those blind areas get summarized by this infatuation. The two hardest times I have people convincing someone of another person's sin are newlyweds and new parents. These newlyweds, like this person has completed every dream I've ever had as a child. And engaged people are, are even worse than newlyweds. All my hopes and dreams are wrapped up in this person. Well, the only thing I can guarantee you in marriage is that you'll be disappointed by your spouse. that doesn't ramp you up a month before Valentine's Day, I don't know what will. Your child, who you are trying to bend their ear and heart towards the Lord, is full of evil by nature and by choice. You teach your kids to walk. You teach them to talk. You teach them to eat properly. I've never met a parent who said, you know, I'm worried my kid just doesn't sin enough. Are there any books I can read to teach them to sin? I'm like, well, probably, but I don't recommend them. I want you to turn to Psalm 41. And we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time here now. We're going to come back to it later. Psalm 41, David is dealing with people that are really tough. Starting in verse 5, he says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? When one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, when he goes about and tells it abroad, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. And listen to this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, this guy, I trusted him, we shared meals together. Even he has lifted his heel against me. David is writing the psalm in the midst of trouble from his friends, deep relational conflict, trouble from his enemies, betrayal, and it takes on the forms of malice, deceit, gossip, and betrayal. Betrayal. 
And we know people are sinful. But when people we love sin against us, it hits different, doesn't it? When the people we love malign us, when they're deceitful towards us, when they betray us, that hits different than someone just randomly breaking into my car and stealing my stuff. It feels much like an a tout brute moment. And so, how does knowing that they are sinners by nature and choice just like me help me? It helps me by setting my expectations in the right place. Having proper expectations. This is not about assuming the worst. This isn't about being pessimistic about every single person. Someone goes to help you across the street and you're like, I don't know, you're pretty sinful. I, don't, I think you're going to lay me under a truck. It's not about thinking the worst of people. But it's about not being surprised when someone sins. And really what this is about is, is closing the gap of disappointment. See, when our expectations are here and our reality is way down here, this is all filled in with disappointment. It's about closing the gap of our disappointment. So you, you, you go into your marriage and you're thinking, I'm married to a sinner. I'm married to someone who's, not gonna, who's, who's prone to bad communication, who's going to get upset, who's not going to express themselves properly. And so when they do that, I'm not going to go, how did my Prince Charming fall so far? But we're going to say, you know what, this is, this is who he is, and, he, it, it, and he's sinful, and so am I. And having that expectation allows us to, in a, in a theological way, handle that disappointment, handle that hurt in a much different way. Because we're able to say, look, this is part of your nature. It's not okay. It's wrong. It needs to be dealt with. But you are sinful. Now, this is not to put all sin at the same level. Obviously, uh, infidelity is going to hit a whole lot harder than you said you balanced the checkbook and you didn't, right? But we can say that the, there's an issue here of sin, and, and let's deal with the issue of sin. It's also this boundary of realizing this is going to help me to be honest about myself. Romans 3.23, everyone but me has fallen short of the sin and fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's, that's how we read it sometimes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. May that fuel our humility in conflict, especially where it's not as black and white, where there's some grayness to it to say, you know what, I'm going to enter this, I'm going to know that I'm a sinner. I want to be quick to repent of that. I'm going to come in not anticipating that I have the monopoly on being right. And then we also, knowing that these people, like me, are sinners by nature and choice, knowing that we have this, um, that we have this, this proclivity to sin, that our flesh is going to naturally desire that, then it, this causes us to pursue timely and appropriate peace. This the Bible has, I'm going to point out three things the Bible says about this. The first is the one that's probably coming to your mind. Ephesians 4.26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
and give the enemy a foothold. When we have these burdens, part of taking them to the Lord is handling them in the way the Lord is honored by. And so we want to handle them. We want to pursue peace and resolution. Don't let your tension ferment and become rancid. Bitterness does not age like a fine wine. It ages like cheap bread. So don't let the sun go down. Pursue peace. Make yourself uncomfortable to get to peace and resolution. Sometimes in that resolution, you both need to take a break and say, can we, can we both take a break and cool down and come back to this in a little bit? Are we at a good enough place to put this on hold knowing we're going to pick this conversation up again? And having a commitment for that? But pursue peace. This is going to sound contrary. If you flip to Proverbs 19, 11, And this is not contrary, but it may sound contrary. Good sense makes one slow to anger. I like that. And it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Did you know that your job is not to be the IRS of rights and wrongs done against you? Your job is not to do a full-on audit of every single thing a person has done to offend you. There's a lot of times in life where we carry burdens because we get too easily offended, because we take something that's like this level offense and make it this level offense, just to his glory to overlook an offense. There are times where people are going to wrong you, and it is very appropriate to say, it's no big deal. I can move on from that. That doesn't need to be addressed. They were a little bit late. Happens to everyone. I'm going to apply the he who's without sin, cast the first stone to myself. Have I ever let someone down? Yeah. Is this a letdown that I can move past? It is. And sometimes it's not. And then you've got to go back to, I've got to pursue this peace because I don't want my tension, I don't want my bitterness to ferment and become rancid. So I've got to deal with it. The last one is let's be cheeky. Matthew 5.39 that we would turn the other cheek. We struggle with this a little bit in our Western understanding. This is not pacifism. This is not, you hit me, and so now I can come over here and let you hit me again. This is not rolling over. Chuck Swindoll, I heard him tell a story of an Irish boxer turned preacher who was traveling around doing preaching. Some guys came to rob him, and they punched him. He said, okay, and he turned the cheek and they hit him again. He goes, I have no more instructions from here and knocked him out. <laughs> he turned the other cheek. He had no more cheeks. Turn the other cheek is not to lay down and let yourself get repeatedly violated, harassed, walked all over. You think about the level of offense that getting slapped on the cheek is. It's an offense to your honor. It's not a, your home was in danger, your family was in danger. And so you had to turn the other cheek and let them get whatever. This is a, you have offended my honor. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn the other cheek, the one that doesn't have your handprint on it, and I'm going to direct that one towards you. 
And so I'm going to reset the relationship as though you haven't hit me, but with that resetting, we're going to have some new ground rules. I'm not going to turn the other cheek and sweep it under the rug and not deal with it so that it builds up and builds up and builds up, and then one day I explode on you. I'm going to hit reset, but it's going to be a reset with boundaries that enable a healthy relationship. Hey, that conversation we had, you lost your cool. I want to be in relationship with you, but next time we have a difference, it needs to be handled correctly and not like that. Hey, what you said about me, that's not okay. My aim is to honor you. I'm sorry if I've fallen short of that, but moving forward, I need you to speak about me differently when I'm not in the room. Can, can we do that? Can we build each other up? As we look to the reality that everybody sins, this does not give us permission, but context. This does not give us permission to say, well, you sin, and so I'm going to get you away from me so I have less sin in my life. It's, not, it's certainly not permission to be like, everyone sins, so I might as well participate. But it's context that this person is sinning because it's part of their nature. It's context that also leads us to the fact of saying, well, what do we know about sin? We know that sin does not get undealt with. That sin is not left alone. That God deals with sin. And so this moves us to redemption. These people, like me, are in need of God's grace and mercy. I want you to think, how have you benefited from God's grace in the, in the times that you have offended him, that you have mistreated him, that you have treated him as less valuable than he actually is, that you have taken advantage of his kindness in heaven? How have you benefited from God's grace in those times? How has God's mercy and grace built you up? And I hope that it's easy for you to see, that you can call to mind easily the times that you have been in need of grace and easily the times that you have benefited from grace as a child of God. Our flesh gets so worked up and out of sorts. And when we take these burdens to the Lord, we are able to find a holy solution to the ways unholiness has corrupted our relationships. And so, the biggest thing I can say here is give them gospel. And if, you're, if your tension, if this difficult relationship is with a believer, give them gospel. Because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Give them gospel. Because they need opportunities just like we do, just like you do, to be reminded of the glories of God's grace and kindness. And it creates this opportunity, tension in the body of Christ creates opportunities for the gospel to resolve and for the gospel to be lived out and for it to remind us of this is how much God loves me. This person forgave me of one little thing. But it was a little thing that we let become a big thing. They've forgiven me. How much more has God forgiven me? 
James 4 tells us that if we repent of our sins, we'll be healed. So can we be quick to live out the repentance side of the gospel to, to those who we're in tension with? If there's something in us that's like, you know what, they wronged me, but I certainly did something wrong too, then I'm just going to go to them and I'm going to say, I did something wrong and I'm sorry, can you forgive me? And I'm not in that moment going to say, but, I mean, if we're honest, you were a pretty big jerk too. Um, we're not going to passive-aggressively passive attack them in that way, but just repent. And we give the gospel to unbelievers that we're in tension with in hope that they'll repent. First Peter talks about wives living with unbelieving husbands. He says to submit that your, that your conduct may, may win them to the Lord. And this is not Peter telling them, be mistreated over and over and over and over again. He's not telling them that at all. But he is saying, let your godliness show. Would you let your godliness show? I imagine you have some people at work that you sometimes have difficulty with and they don't know the Lord. And when their difficulty with you is handled in a gospel way, they're going to go, well, dealing with this person is very different than dealing with HR. And I like this. And I want to know more about it. And let's raise a gospel curiosity with the readiness to answer. And finally, we trust the Lord. Now let's go back to Psalm 41. David is crying out because he is being attacked. People are acting maliciously towards him, and some of those people are good friends of his, or were good friends of his. We're going to do a quick overview of Psalm 41. He starts, this is who the Lord is. The Lord, uh, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In that day of trouble, the Lord will deliver him. The Lord will protect him. He calls out, the Lord sustains him on his sickbed. He's crying out for God to be gracious, knowing who God is. So he starts with a theological confession. God, this is who you are. This is how you work. Then he goes into his problem. These people are malicious. They're gossiping. They're coming after me. Even my friend has abandoned me for them. And then he goes right back to the Lord at the end. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity. You've set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. He says, here's what the Lord does. Here's my tension, anxiety, and pain. God, will you do what you do? The structure of this psalm emphasizes that what God's thoughts of David are. And here's the deal. We can follow all the instructions we can in the Bible for our relationships. I'm acting every way I'm called to as a husband. I'm acting every way I'm called to as a kid or a parent or a wife, as a coworker. And the tension is not resolving. I'm not letting the sun go down on it. I'm overlooking where I can. I am turning the other cheek and resetting the relationships. And it just keeps happening and happening and happening. Because people like me are sinners by nature and choice. 
So sometimes that doesn't get resolved. And David is in a situation where resolve doesn't seem possible. But he starts by saying, God, here's who you are and here's what you do. Here's what I'm facing. God, will you do what you do? Do you notice how he brackets his burden with the character and nature and work of God? He brackets his burden and his pain, all the betrayal, all the loneliness, all the injustice done against him. He brackets all of that with who God is and what God does. God, here's who you are and here's what you do. Here's what I'm facing. God, because of who you are, will you do what you do? Rest in God's work for you. Trust the Lord in this. Trust his ways in this. And rest in the new reality that I am a child of God, the most high God, and a member of the royal priesthood. God's truth about you is what matters most. Give it credence. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. This means that I consciously, deliberately, and actively speak to myself about myself and about my relationship with God. It means that when I wake up in the morning, before I allow myself to think about anything else, I say to myself, you are a child of God and an heir of eternity. God knows you and you belong to him. I must do that and do it forcibly. Do you forcibly tell yourself that you're a child of God when these relationships are falling apart? When you're super lonely? When it feels like there's no resolution, when it feels like things might not get better, at least not for the next few years, are you forcibly telling yourself, I am a child of God, an heir of eternity. God knows me and I belong to him. Lloyd Jones says, because the moment I wake up, the thoughts will come crowding into my mind, perhaps temptations, perhaps doubts of all sorts of things, but I must brush them all aside and deliberately remind myself of God and myself and my relationship with him. I meditate upon that and then consciously seek the presence of God. To put it another way, I must practice the presence of God. This deliberate telling yourself over and over again about God and you and, and your relationship with him is one of the greatest anti-gossip tools you can have. Because when you hear people gossiping about you, you can say, you know what, I'm a child of God. He is preparing a place for me even as I speak. When I pray, he answers me. He hears me. He knows me. He knows the hairs on my head. He's made me the salt of the earth. He's given me significance by bringing me into the royal priesthood. I'm a part of the largest family ever. And one day, that family will all be together for an eternal family reunion where there will be no awkwardness or sin or shame. It's like better than actual family reunions. Live in and through who God has made you. I think of Peter being approached by Jesus after he betrayed him. Jesus forgiving Peter. No, I'm, I'm reading my notes wrong. Scrap that. I think of Peter saying, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? 
Should I forgive him seven times? Which was astronomically high for that culture. And in our culture where it's fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me. I mixed it up. You get it. You know what I'm saying. Should I forgive him up to seven times? Thinking Peter, th- Peter thinking he's pretty holy. And Jesus says, no, you should forgive him 70 t- times seven. Peter's thinking, I, I don't have an abacus in my boat. I can't count that high. That's the point. And Jesus could say this to Peter. Forgive them that many times, so much you can't count. Forgive them completely. Forgive them infinitely. Because Jesus had done that for Peter, and Jesus has done that for me. When I look at who God has made me, how I've treated the image of God in my own body, in my own self, and then match that with the accomplishments of his grace, I realize that despite all the times I've solely caused tension in my relationship with God, because it's all been my fault, that he's been steadfast, he's been kind, he's been gracious. There'll come a day where I'm no longer the toxic one in my relationship with the Lord, where neither one of us are toxic, where I'm no longer at fault, but I stand fully holy before the Lord. There'll come a day, especially you think about this with your relationship that's in tension is with another believer, there'll come a day where there'll be zero tension between you and you can just enjoy fellowship with one another. Let's start claiming every bit of that new reality we can right now. Walk in the forgiveness and the grace. Walk in the transforming forgiveness of Jesus that he has so graciously given us because he loves us. And cast our burden on the Lord because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this holiness. We thank you for... Uh, this example that you've given us, that you've forgiven us this many times. And Lord, I pray you would help me to be as generous with forgiveness as you have been with me. Lord, would you move in our hearts to view the people we are having difficulty with through a gospel lens and a gospel application. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.